Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Krita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you today and thank you for tuning in. You are again for a beautiful study from the book of Hebrew. And please stay with us and you'll enjoy this hour. I would like to welcome our panel and I will say hello to Brenton from down uh, southeast. Thank you, uh, Nick. It's an absolute privilege to study this subject because it is such an important subject. Looking forward to sharing it with our listeners. All right. We'll go a bit more north and uh, we'll say hello to Helen. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Nick. It's a delight, isn't it, to get together and study God's word. And I, too, feel very privileged to be part of the panel. Thank you. Will, it's good to have you with us also. Thank you, Nick. I always feel good to be in such good company. And a little bit more center, Len. Good to have you with us too. Yes, thank you, Dick. And hello, listeners. Going a little bit more south, uh, Joe. It's good to have you with us too. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I love being here and uh, thank you for this. And also, Lija, thank you for joining. Yeah, it's a pleasure and a blessing for me every time. All right. Well, um, Len, it's our facilitator today. And uh, thank you, Len, for uh, putting together this uh, Bible study. Uh, I will just hand it over to you. Please take us through. Okay. Well, listeners, so far this year, we've been sharing from the New Testament book of Hebrews. The message of Hebrews was primarily addressed to the Jewish Christians in probably Jerusalem. These people would have been familiar with the rituals involved in Jewish worship ceremonies. But the author of Hebrews, who's most likely the Apostle Paul, wanted the people to understand that Jesus was far more than Saviour and that the services and ceremonies they were familiar with pointed to Christ. This week we are dealing with the New Covenant and we hope to answer some of the questions you may have regarding the change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But before launching into this subject of study, let's ask the Lord for guidance. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are able to study the subject of the New Covenant. We thank you that Jesus made the statement himself the night that he was in the upper room with his disciples that this is the New Covenant of my blood, which is shed for many. Lord, all of us will be saved in the kingdom of heaven only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. Give us grace. Give us spiritual insight. Give us heavenly wisdom as we share this topic today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. Well, Will, approximately 600 years before Christ, the prophet Jeremiah and about 15 years later, the prophet Ezekiel, both prophesied about something special the Lord would do. And we find this in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 35, and Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. So would you care to read Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 35, and comment, please? Yes, of course, then. Uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 35. And uh, permit me to read it out of the Living Bible. I think it becomes a little more clear. Um, the 
the word contract is substituted for the word covenant to help us understand it better, but let me read it. Verse 31. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will make a new contract with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the one I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, because it's a contract they broke, forcing me to reject them, says the Lord. But this is the new contract I will make with them. I will inscribe my laws upon their hearts so that they shall want to honor me. Then they shall truly be my people, and I will be their God. At that time, it will no longer be necessary to admonish one another to know the Lord. For everyone, both great and small, shall really know me then, says the Lord, and I will forgive and forget their sins. I think that we probably commented through this entire Bible study today, but I could just maybe make one statement. Writing it upon their hearts, it seems as if their sin was inscribed on their hearts so that they wanted above all to disobey. But this change in the covenant seems to mean that uh, to describe an experience, they had very much like the uh, new birth where a softened heart will be given to them. Yes, probably some people are wondering, well, does this apply to everybody? Well, no, it actually doesn't. It applies to the people who've chosen to serve God, which means that, we'll just say, Joe Blow on the street does not have the new covenant and he does not have God's law written on his heart. It's for God's people. Now, of course, Joe Blow on the street may become one of God's people. Then things have changed. Well, the author of Hebrews repeats this prophecy that was given in Jeremiah almost word for word in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 to 12. So, Joe, would you read Hebrews 8, verse 13, and just um, tell us what's the implication regarding the Old Covenant? Okay, in Hebrews 8, verse 13, in that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. In an easier version, Len, it says he has made the first one obsolete, he being God, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Now, something that was regarded um, as eternal by the Israelites was now shown to be a type, a shadow until Christ, whose birth, life and death fulfilled all the ceremonial laws and sacrifices and feasts. And while this is the end of the chapter, this is the end of chapter 8, chapter 9 goes on. You know, he does, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He goes on to describe the Levitical priestly system and its limitations, insufficiencies and inadequacy. And so it implies that what was old is being replaced or renewed, if you like, so that the weakness of the priestly service under the old covenant, with its inability to address the need of the inner transformation in 
in the person, in the human, in the, in the Jew, in us. Therefore, it was only imposed until Jesus came and fulfilled all that it pointed to. Does that kind of sum it up a bit? Oh, I think that sums it up very well. And what was the catalyst of the change? Well, of course, it was Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and resurrection. So if the old covenant became obsolete, Helen, what was the old covenant? Thank you, Len. If we look into it, um, I mean, even the word covenant can be a bit of a shock for people. Some people aren't fully aware of what we're talking about here. And I'd just like to mention by the author himself of our study this week, who says a covenant is a solemn agreement between two or more parties to do or not to do something. And in biblical times, covenants involved an important social dimension. Covenants were designed to extend to non-family members, protection, financial support and other benefits that families normally provided. Thus, covenant agreements, both on personal and national levels, used family language to describe the parties and the relationship with them, you know, as in an agreement. But I would like to share from Deuteronomy, if I may, in um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 and 16, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says here, now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees and regulations by walking in his ways. And if you do this, you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you and the land that you are about to enter and occupy. Okay, so really the old covenant, the essence of it was you obey God and you will live and be blessed. Is that right? That's correct. So the new covenant has a different dimension. Now, Will, I've heard some people say that the old covenant is the Ten Commandments, and because the old covenant had disappeared, they say, and I find this um, reasoning rather illogical, but they say, Because the Old Covenant has been uh, superseded, the Ten Commandments are gone. What's your comment to that? Well, uh, my response is horror to think (laughs) that God would even want to uh, do away with his law. Well, let me read it to you out of Matthew chapter 5. And this is Jesus speaking himself. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, talking about uh, the commandments, All the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me just say, it's quite a stretch, uh, even presumptuous, I think, to think that God would set up a new covenant or an agreement with his people in which he would discard the life principles of his law. By this, let me say, 
we suggest that stealing, adultery, coveting our neighbor's wife or a husband or goods or um, blaspheming the name of God, dishonoring parents is no longer part of the deal with these people. It's absurd. There's nothing bad about the old commandments that they need to be thrown out or no longer obeyed. Okay, so would you say unequivocally that the Old Covenant is not the Ten Commandments? The Old Covenant is not the Ten Commandments then. (laughs) Okay, so however, it must be noted that the Ten Commandments were an integral part of the Old Covenant. Yes, certainly. All right. Yes, Brenton. Can I make a brief comment on what we've done so far? The Old Covenant was based on, as Helen read, I think, it was an agreement between two parties, between God and the children of Israel. And when we studied this, I think last year when we were studying the book of Deuteronomy, we touched several times on a statement made by the people. All that the Lord has said, we will do. Now, what we have read so far in our studies suggests that they did not, they were not obedient. They did not keep, as it were, to their part of the agreement. The new covenant, the difference between the old and the new is massive. The new is based on faith. It's not based on all the Lord said we will do. It's based on we are saved by grace through faith. When we receive that grace, we receive the new heart and the new life. So I just wanted to, to point out the contrast between all the Lord has said we will do in the Old Testament. There is no statement that I can find in the New Testament that states all the Lord has said we will do. We do agree that obedience is necessary. We do agree that. But obedience comes by faith in the new covenant and the sacrifice that Christ has made. One has to... I think Joe mentioned it. You've got to do away with the old. The old can't be put aside. The old has to be abolished. The new has to have its complete and utter fulfillment in our hearts and our lives. Not a shred of the old covenant can help us today in 2022. What can help us is faith in Jesus Christ and his all atoning sacrifice for us. Yes. Well, now we have to consider what, um, was read from Matthew about what Jesus said with regard to the Ten Commandments. Yes. But we also need to recognise that the Ten Commandments saves nobody. We're only saved through the sacrifice of Jesus. However, as will be pointed out shortly, it's um, still important to keep the Ten Commandments because God's people are a righteous people, not an unrighteous people. So the old covenant was all about keeping the law. So what was wrong with that old covenant, Ledger? There was nothing wrong with the old covenant. What was wrong was with the people, the Israelites, because they failed to keep it. So they broke it. The old covenant was not close to their hearts or in their hearts. The old covenant was works-based and the the new covenant is faith-based. Yes, the old covenant was works-based. What you do is what counts. But the new covenant is based on faith. 
It's what Christ has done, not what we do. Now, I'll give you a little illustration. Uh, just recently I had a little um, issue where I was. Uh, it was suggested I don't drive for four weeks. And because I play golf first thing in the morning, before the sun rises, uh, that's during the week, not on the weekend, my dear wife has been my chauffeur. I don't know what the female version of chauffeur chauffeur is. Well, anyhow, regardless of that, she drove me to the golf course, went for a walk because it's a beautiful area around there. And so when we were fin- when I was finished and it was time to go home, she uh, took the wheel and backed the car into another car and broke the taillight. Now, there was nothing wrong with the car. The car wasn't at fault. The fault lay with the driver. I hope she doesn't hear that I'm not criticising her. It was just one of those things. This is like the old covenant. There wasn't actually anything wrong with the old covenant. What was wrong with it is that the people were unable to keep it as they were expected to. All right, well, let's move on a bit. Nick, would you like to read for us, please, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, and then make a comment on that? Yes, Len, thank you. This is a very beautiful passage here, and um, I would like to read it first, and I'll make a couple of comments here. Verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. I think this is very important. And uh, we mentioned a bit earlier, Brenton spoke a bit about that, and Ligia about um, the old covenant and uh, uh, based on works, and uh, uh, we talk about faith. But I would like to give a little bit of a different spin here. I just want to read also verse 3 from the same chapter. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. What was the intent of the covenant, of the old covenant? Is to remind people that they are sinners and that God promised them the Messiah, the one to come to lift up all sins. In the old covenant, they were not absolved, or how you say that, of their sins. They did all those sacrifices day by day, year by year, you know, with the high priest going into the temple. But that was to remind them that they are sinful. And only Jesus could take away the sins through his blood and will come to that. That's what I believe uh, when we talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. Is nothing wrong that, you know, the old covenant was as Lydia pointed out, that was anything wrong. The old covenant, how people looked at it, instead, instead of having their eyes pointed to the Messiah, to Jesus. As you know, if you read the, the book of Job, which was written, probably the first book of the Bible, he foreseen, you know, the, uh, his Redeemer. You know, and Jesus and Messiah. I think this is where we could get some time clocked in talking about the old and the new uh, covenant. Now, one thing I would like to say is that once Jesus came, 
And we, through his blood, one sacrifice for all, with his blood, cover that sin. And he became victorious over sin. Because not with the blood of the bulls and the goats, we could not be victorious through those offerings and to those. Uh, but that was important at that time to do it, to be able to look forward to Jesus and the better covenant. I think that's why, and we may touch on this one, what's about the difference in between the better covenant? Yes, one um, has to consider this, that it was all dependent on Jesus' sacrifice. All those sacrifices they made in the Old Testament, and if you read in the Old Testament about the dedication of the temple when Solomon was king of Judah, or king of Israel as well. At that time, an enormous number of of animals were sacrificed. It would have cost fortunes. And I think all this, all this, the people may not have realised at the time, but it all pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus. Otherwise, they could have paid money for the uh, forgiveness of sins or something like that. But no, there's the forgiveness of sins depends on the giving of the life of the Lord. Lydia, I think you've got a beautiful comment to share with the, our listeners today. God established a sacrificial system that would allow the Israelites to be cleansed conditionally from their sins. But these sacrifices had to be repeated over and over. He ordained priests to represent the people before him, as the people could never come directly into the presence of God. And even with all these accommodations, the whole nation as a whole was unfaithful and eventually fell under the judgment of God. Yes. So here is an illustration of the fact that the old covenant, as good as it was, wasn't quite good enough and was dependent on the new. Now, Brendan, I know we've spoken a little bit about this earlier, but uh, what would you say to anyone who believes that the old covenant is the Ten Commandments, which they have assumed has been abolished? Let me share by reading Colossians 2, verse 14, then we'll explain it. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, sometimes there is an assumption that this is talking about God's law, the Ten Commandments. It can't be talking about God's law, and here's the reason why. Helen read in um, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 16, and if you go through the whole book of Deuteronomy and see the frequency of the times that Moses tell them to, tells them to keep God's commands, and his commands include the Ten Commandments, so that you may live a long life, you may live a prosperous life, you may live a happy life. Why would God tell them in the Old Testament that these things are necessary and then in the New Testament tell them that these things have been done away with? Um, what is What was faulty, I believe, was the fact, as we've already touched on, that the ceremonial law could not save them. So it was faulty in that regard. 
And Peter talks about this in the book of Acts, and I'm going to read chapter 15, where he's talking to the what we would call the first general conference of the church. He says this, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. It seems to have dawned upon Peter after the experience with Cornelius that from now on the new covenant applied to not only Jews who were absolutely steeped in the Old Testament, but also applied to Gentiles and the method by which they were saved was exactly the same. I think, Len, it it was... (laughs) Because Hebrews was written largely to Jewish Christians, I think it was a long, long time before Jewish Christians began to realise that everything uh, that pointed to Christ in the Old Testament, um, the sacrificial system, the ceremonial system, had been abolished in Christ and that he was the fulfilment of all of those things. Therefore, Colossians 2.14 cannot possibly be referring to the abolition of something that in the Old Testament was told was for their best good and for a long and healthy and happy life. It's necessary in the New Testament to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to a person's life, and only Christ can do that. And when he applies that blood to us, we are able to live that long, happy and joyful life that Helen talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Yes, I'd like to share with you that the New Testament, there are at least two statements that I know of, which says it is still important to keep the commandments of God. One's in 1 Corinthians 7.19, which says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commandments is what counts. And then we have in 1 John 5 verse 3, this is love for God that we keep his commands. So you can see just from that that the commandments have never been abolished. They have perhaps been applied in a different way. Yes, Nick? Yes, Len, I just want to comment on uh, also what uh, uh, Brenton uh, brought up, you know, from Deuteronomy. And and he mentioned the word, I think, that he said that the law stood against, you know, the, the people. This is very interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 26, it says this, take this book of the law and put it beside the, the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Now, this is a very important passage in the Bible because tells us that those ordinances or those, that law, it was to be put beside the ark not in the ark, which we know that the Ten Commandments is in the in in the ark, mm-hmm. because of beside the, the ark, God talks also about the blessings and the curses. And if you break this law, the curses will come upon you. If you keep this law, the blessing will come upon you. You see, this is the very important passage in the Bible to define which law we're talking about here. We talk about the ceremonial law or we talk about the moral law. Okay, well, I would like to give an analogy here. 
Um, I suppose pretty much everybody's been to a restaurant mm. and uh, when you're deciding what to eat, you get a menu. And I see this in a parallel to the ceremonial law and the moral law. The ceremonial law is, as this is just an analogy, it's like the menu. It's not the real thing. But then when the meal comes out, that's the real thing. It, that's the moral law, the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial law kind of points to the moral law. Anyhow, I don't want us to confuse our listeners. I thought that analogy might be helpful. Mm, sure. Joe, rather than abolishing the law, God states that under the new covenant, something different will happen to the law. So would you like to share about this with us? Yes, Len. It's ironic, isn't it, that the law that many would like to think has been abolished or done away with, nailed to the cross, is actually internalised, if you like. He has, God is um, is writing them on people's hearts. And, and in Hebrews 8.10, we have this passage, and it's a direct quote from something that Will had read earlier in Jeremiah 31, verses 33, and it says, This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, despite what many might think, I think this was God's intention from the very first He didn't want people to lose sight of of walking with him and obeying him in a wholehearted way like David did, you know, and using rituals and sacrifices to make themselves feel good about their spirituality. So, and we know that this couldn't happen, this didn't happen. This is what, this was God's intention the whole time. It was his, his desire, but it didn't happen because of the hardness of their hearts. And, and God laments that their rebellious nature. So hence the writing of the laws on our hearts is perhaps, I'll try and and put it in some words, the changing, the growing, the overcoming, the transformation of the heart is the writing of the laws on the heart and it is cooperative. Now the Israelites didn't cooperate in this and so God did his part or does his part and we do our part. And um, he's already writing his values or his laws on our hearts. In effect, he's changing our hearts. His his spirit, if you like, is transforming us day by day to make us more like Christ. Am I going too far? In Philippians 2.13 says, God is at work in you, giving you the desire to please him and the ability to do it. So this is what God is intending. He's not actually writing a letter on our hearts as he did on the Ten Commandments. He's actually transforming us from the inside. So those laws that many would like to think were abolished and done away with are now being put in our hearts. God is at work. He's he's doing it. God is at work and he's giving you the desire and the ability to do it, to please him. So this is basically what it means. It is God transforming us and writing those laws on our hearts. Okay, and putting them in our minds. We cooperate with him. Yes, I'd like to give another analogy. When you were a little child, 
Maybe there was an occasion when you wanted to put your hand up on the hot stove and quite likely your mother would have said to you, don't touch that, it's hot, correct? Oh, I can see a lot of heads nodding. Yes, and listeners, you might have had this experience too. Okay, one day you did put your hand up there and you found it was quite hot and rather painful. What happened after that? You, in your mind, had made the decision that was not what you should do. It came from you. Now, I see this often with children. I've worked with children for a large part of my life. When children are very small, they'll do something because mummy or daddy or somebody says so. But later on, when they've experienced what they were cautioned against experiencing, they'll do it willingly or not do it willingly. They know what to do. And I see this as a bit of an analogy here. Helen, I know you uh, read a lot and you've got some very good things to say. Would you like to share what you've got to share with us? Thank you, Lynn. Yes, I would be delighted. Thank you. Um, it's really it's it's most important, though, I believe that we understand that the new covenant law written on the heart is exactly the same law that was graven on stone. Some people believe that when it was done away with, it was a brand new covenant. But those great spiritual um, principles reflect the very character of God and form the basis of his government. The difference is not in the law, but in the ministration of the law written only upon the tables of stone, they can only condemn and minister death. It's pretty solemn, isn't it? Because the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, Romans 8, 7 tells us, but received into the heart which has been spiritualized by the converting grace of Christ, the same law becomes a delight. I I was thinking about that the other day. The same law becomes a delight. Is it a delight for us when we go down the street and we we need to stop at a stop sign? How would it be if we didn't? Now, I have to confess, I actually, I think, first time for me, I think only twice in my whole life, I have gone through red lights. And I did that the other day because I was behind an ambulance and I automatically followed him through. (laughs) Those lights are there to save us, to protect us. Isn't that right? Mm. And when we look at um, through the converting grace of Christ, the law becomes a delight. We are delighted to keep it. In fact, the beloved John wrote and declared in his um, gospel, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. And some people say, but they're all, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But when you look at it, it is not grievous for the child of God filled with God in, in our life, his graciousness. Obedience becomes a joyful possibility because we can understand through his grace and the spirit what the Lord really is all about. The psalmist, he also wrote, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I really hope and pray that that is the echo in all of our hearts as we think about what we're talking about today, the old and the new covenant, may it be a delight, but may it also um, bring us joy as we keep those covenants with God. Now, I want to give a spontaneous question to you panel members, something you're not prepared for, I expect. For you, is the law of God a delight 
And if so, why? Yes, Helen. Yeah, just coming in, jumping in quickly. When I consider, if we're talking here, of course, the moral law, I consider the first one being so important about loving God with all our heart, all our soul. You know, it becomes a delight because he enables us through his grace to follow him in in that manner. It becomes a delight because we know it was given to us for our protection. It, it becomes a delight because we can then be a blessing to other people. You know, it comes a delight because it is the first four talk about God and the last six about our relationship with people. It encompasses our whole being, our whole life, you know, not just the spiritual but the physical and the social and the mental and the emotional. And i better get off my soapbox right now and hand it to someone else. Yes, thank you, Helen. Now, Nick, you wanted to say something. I was just going to say that, uh, you know, we mentioned the the law written on stone or written into our hearts. Um, and we have tendency to say that it's better to have written on our hearts. It was the same uh, good written on stones because, you know, the saying written on stone to be there forever, you know, like uh, um, the difference is that when it's written on our hearts, as we talked before, you take an action moved, let's say, by your own decisions, you know. In Israel, they have the privilege as a people, as a nation, you know, to benefit of the the grace of God and the, all those things, you know, as a nation. But they mistreated that uh, favor. And um, that's what Jesus said, okay, individually, relationship. That's the key word. When the law is written on our hearts, that's on a level of relationship. And then it's how you choose. You know, you choose to do something or you choose not to do something. And it's, yeah, very, very interesting. I'd like to summarize what you said there. I'd just like to say this. If it's written on stone, it doesn't do any good. It only does good when it's put into action. And that's the written on the hearts bit. Yes, Ledger. Um, yes, Len, you asked if the new covenant is a delight. Yes, it is a delight because it's placed in our minds and it's written in our hearts. So it means that it, this is an individual experience with God. So this placement is done by the Holy Spirit. So when it's done, it's it's perfected. It's a transformation of ourselves. So it's a delight to live into it. Yes, I think it's a delight to be able to uh, live your life, to walk down the street, do all the things that you do without feeling guilty, without uh, people being suspicious of you because you've done what is right. That is a real delight. When you're feeling guilty and people don't trust you, that's not a delight. Anyhow, let's move on. Nick, in Hebrews 8 verse 6, it talks something about the promises. Would you like to, to read that verse and just uh, see if you can explain why the term better is used? Right. Well, Len, um, again, this is uh, clarifying a few things here. In, uh, in Hebrew 8 verse 6. And it says here, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry 
inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The word which stood up for me is promises. Because when sin came into the picture, and we know that through the, our first parents, you know, Adam and Eve, after all the consequences of sin, there was a promise. What was the promise? That God will give them a Redeemer, a Messiah. That's the promise. You see, through all what we discuss in the, in the life of, of Israel, but not only because before the law given in a written format on Mount Sinai, for about 2,000 years, people lived under the instruction of God. There was some sort of law, I will say. And that's the promises of God, which every single one, like Abraham and others, before they looked forward to that promise. And right now here, it says in, um, in Hebrew 8, that uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, it's able to be not only the high priest, but the mediator of, uh, of us all. And all this in, in chapter 8, actually, it talks quite a lot about the um, new priestly service. Many people don't believe there is such a ministry in heaven of the, of the heavenly sanctuary. And I don't know why people don't believe, because it's so clear in the Bible that our Lord Jesus Christ minister in the original temple, if you like, or the, uh, not like the tabernacle which was given to, uh, to Moses. And Jesus ministers there with his blood, not with the blood of the bulls or the blood of the goats. And I, as I, I said a bit earlier, and this is the wonderful thing for us all to be able to be connected with the high priest in heaven who will represent us and will defend us if we give ourselves to him. Let me ask you a quick clarifying question here, Nick. Yeah. The New Covenant promises are described as better promises. Here's my question. Can they be improved on? No, they the New Covenant be... cannot be improved. No, that's, that's where I was heading for here. All right, Helen, so what promises in the New Covenant were better than in the Old? Well, there's a great text, and it's in Hebrews, and it's chapter 10, 4 to 10. I'm not going to read all of those verses, but I want to pick out, for me, when I read verse 4 to start with, it says, It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Old Covenant was sacrificing the animals and the goats, and the New Covenant, of course, was Christ's blood. And when I thought about that, I thought, praise the Lord that we do not have to go sacrificing animals. So for me, that was definitely a, a tick for being better. But, you know, Christ actually came into the world to show us. In, in fact, if you like, um, cancelling the first covenant in order to put into effect a far better one meant doing away with the system of sacrifices contained in the ceremonial law. And... When I jump down to verse 9, I, I actually believe that that is the crux of this whole part. It says, then he said, look, I have come to do your will. 
He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. Praise God for that. You know, it was, as we mentioned earlier, it was a costly price uh, to sacrifice all the animals, the animal's life, and impressed upon the sinner the seriousness of, of his or her own sin before God. Because Jesus shed his own blood for us, his sacrifice is infinitely greater than any Old Testament offering. You know, and considering the immeasurable, the immeasurable gift, I can't even get it out. When we consider the gift that he gave us, we should respond by giving him our devotion, service and praise. You know, it's outstanding when we think about what he has done for us. And why did he do it? Well, it does mention there also because for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ for all time. Yes, you know, to be made holy, just jumping very quickly, Lynn, here, to be made holy, we need to stop and meditate on that sometime. We're not doing it now, but to stop and meditate. What does that mean in our life, in our heart, in our relationships, and in, in our relationship with Christ? Joe, Hebrews 8.6 not only points out that the new covenant is superior, but the ministry of Jesus, the high priest, is also superior. How? Well, Lynn, I think Nick has, uh, has already established very ably that Jesus' ministry um, as our high priest and mediator is better and superior in every way. Um, I think we need to remember that the priests under the Levitical system were flawed, short-lived creatures, not able to save their own lives, much less could they save the souls of those who came to them. They couldn't cleanse themselves of sin. They couldn't change the lives of those who came to them. But Jesus, our high priest and mediator, holds his office by the virtue of the power of his endless life or the endless life in himself. And he is able to give spiritual and eternal life to all who rely upon his sacrifice and intercession. The better covenant of which Jesus was the shorty Jesus is the guarantor. In Hebrews 7.22, it basically says that. Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, this is our, the believer's safety, hope, and happiness, that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Now, this rings a bell, doesn't it? In all times and in all cases, and as Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He is that shorty, that guarantor, that pledge. And in Philippians 1.6, Paul also writes, I am convinced and confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect and complete it until the day of Jesus Christ the time of his return. But just to glance back at Hebrews 9.14, and I think this has already been mentioned, it's beautiful. It says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness, consciences. Let me try that again. Consciences from Acts that lead to death. That's the sinful life, isn't it? So that we may serve the living God. 
For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Then let me say that God wanted Israel's faithfulness to be a grateful response to what he had done for them. Thus he gave the Ten Commandments to them with a historical prologue expressing his love and care for them. God wanted Israel to obey his laws as an acknowledgement uh, that he that he wanted the best for them, a truth revealed in the great deliverance from Egypt. In short, their obedience was to be an expression of gratitude, a proof of the, the, reality, the reality of their relationship. And I think the same is true for us today. Jesus' love and care for us in dying is really the prologue of a new covenant. True obedience comes from the heart as an expression of love. And this love is the distinguishing mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in the lives of believers. Yes. Now, Brenton, quick question. What ratified, that is, formalised both the Old Covenant and the New? The simple answer is blood. However, in the Old Testament, some things, believe it or not, were ratified by fire or by water. And in Leviticus 5, you actually find that um, one sacrifice was ratified by flour. However, in the Levitical system as a whole, it was necessary to have have the shedding of blood. Now, summarising very quickly, the reason why animals could never take away a person's sin was that animals are created beings. The creator himself had to come and shed his blood. It was only the shedding of his blood that was able to take away sin completely. A very important point. All right, now, we're going to do a little bit of a revision here, listeners, uh, just to go through the main points again. Address to you, Lydia. What issue is at the centre of the new covenant? Obedience. Obedience to God's commands, just as for the old covenant. Okay, thank you. Joe, how should anyone obey God? Very willingly and happily in a spirit of appreciation of the greatness and goodness of our God because he only wants what's best for us. Okay. Helen, how should anyone not obey God? Not out of fear, and not out but of a sense that obedience will save us because God's new and living way for us to please him is not by keeping laws or even by abstaining from sin, Len. I believe it's by coming to him in faith to be forgiven and then following him in loving obedience. Thank you. Nick, will obedience get us saved? Well, that's a very tricky one. Uh, and Len, with a short answer, it may be difficult, but um, you know how he says in the Bible, if you love me, you keep my commandments. I mean, that's sort of some sort of obedience there, but we are not saved by uh, whatever we can do. We are saved only through the blood of Jesus Christ. But obedience plays a very important role. Okay. Well, this will be a revision of the revision, I think, Brenton. What gets <laughs> us saved? We are saved by the acceptance of Christ. Jesus actually said to Nicodemus in John 3.14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
So we are saved solely by the blood of Christ. We are saved solely by his sacrifice. Yes. And then we are justified as a result of that. That's right. Well, why then should anybody bother about keeping God's laws? I think, Len, we keep God's law because we desire to please him. And this is um, motivated by a deep gratitude to him. Frankly, any Christian will tell you living in harmony with God and his law is the best way to live our lives. Yes. Helen, to whom, and I know this was said before, to whom does the new covenant apply? I think the short answer would be Christians. However, it was put into effect for every human being that ever lived on this earth. And why does it directly apply to us? Because we take Christ into our heart and our life. We want to be obedient to him. But those that are not following him, that are not Christians, they don't even know about the new covenant then. They just want to devalue it. But let me just say the new covenant came into being when Christ died and was resurrected. That was the new covenant. Yes. Now, Brenton, is there any place in Christianity for the Old Covenant? Uh, This could be a two-edged question, but let's see what you've got to say. The simple answer is no. Um, There is no place for it because, as I said earlier on, it was necessary for the blood of the Creator to um, absolve or to save the created. What is a little bit distressing is to see that moves are being made today to reinstitute the temple services in um, Israel. A certain group of people have already bred the animals for sacrifice. They've already prepared um, the priestly garments. They've trained people up in the ways of the old system. Can I suggest as kindly as possible that this in actual fact is blasphemy? It is actually setting at naught the blood of Jesus Christ, it is saying we don't believe that that sacrifice back there in AD 31 was sufficient, so therefore we're going back to uh, the old system. Um, So as Christians, we have a simple choice. The simple choice is accept the blood of Jesus Christ, and Len, you would probably know, studying with people and Will and others on our panel, sometimes it is hard to get people to accept that all that is necessary for their salvation is to accept the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf because somehow they seem to think they have to do something as part of the process. No, we have to accept what has been done for us. Yes, what you've just said is very important, and I hope you took real, really good note of that. Listeners, don't get the idea that the New Covenant means God's law has been abolished. Rather... The law is firmly planted as the central issue of the new covenant. The difference now is that the law, instead of being written on stone and locked away in the Ark of the Covenant somewhere, is put inside our hearts and minds. With that, we have a diligent desire to do God's will, and if we do wrong, we may have immediate forgiveness through Jesus, our mediator, who mediates in his capacity is our high priest in heaven. The new covenant is the good news of salvation, and this revelation to the Hebrew Christians must have pleased and excited them, and we hope it pleases and excites you too. Will, would you like to close the study today with prayer? Certainly. We long to do your will, Lord, to live a life 
of uh, serenity in Christ. Jesus, our Savior, is all in all to us, and we want to do this in response to what he has done for us. Today we have to confess that your covenant of peace and the promise of life eternal is much more than we deserve, but we aspire to walk in your ways and live with you in eternity. And there we, we know we'll forever praise and thank you for so great a salvation. Until then, please keep us, our gratitude alive, and, and we pray that uh, we may make Jesus all in all in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, your input, for the participation today. This is a um, wonderful uh, study in the book of uh, Hebrew. And as uh, we look at uh, in this um, uh, Bible studies, this series, in the last days, the message of Hebrew. I think it's very important to look uh, from that perspective that has an application for us in this time we live. I will invite you to join us again next time when we are going to look at Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Until then, may God richly bless you and have a safe walk with Jesus. Amen. Amen.